So we've been looking at Exodus 15, 16, 17. After they cross the Red Sea, they come to Merah, where the water is bitter, and they complain about it, and God fixes the water. Then they complain that they're going to die of hunger. The Lord gives them bread from heaven. And then they come to Massa and Meribah. And again, they complain that they're going to die of thirst. And the Lord gives them water again. Well, Moses is commenting on these sorts of events. Uh, he's commenting really on the whole 40 years, but uh, particularly it's events like these that Moses has in mind when he says in Deuteronomy 8.2, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. I was privileged last night to be at Berean Bible Church as they celebrated their 64th anniversary. It's Pastor Paul Garn's first year as pastor there at Berean Bible Church, and he invited me to come and to celebrate with them and to bring greetings from CRBC to them, so I did that, and he asked me to share a few minutes of, of a word of encouragement to the church, and I encouraged them to keep the gospel central, keep the main thing, the main thing, and a number of other pastors were invited and, and asked to share likewise. Well, one of the pastors that I met there, I won't call the name, but he was speaking with me afterwards, and he said to me that we need to really make sure as pastors, as church leaders, that we don't lead God's people to Meribah, where there is no water, and that we need to make sure that the church has enough financial means and enough temporal resources to make sure that God's people are never without. And that we have to really make sure as a church that we're providing for God's people in this way because we should not lead them to Meribah, he says, where there is no water. Well, I didn't say anything. It wasn't the time or the place. But who was it that led God's people to Meribah? It was God. Right? We, we read that the Lord has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So the Lord pinned his people between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. The Lord led his people to Merah, where the water was bitter. The Lord let his people get hungry enough to cry out and then fed them with manna. The Lord led his people to a place, Massa and Meribah, where there was no water, in order that he might provide water from the rock. And all of this was intentional. All of this was on purpose. We've seen already, but it's worth reviewing, that God does not promise to make our lives easy. God doesn't promise to make our lives smooth. God doesn't promise you that he won't lead you to Meribah, nor does he promise you that I won't lead you to Meribah. Sometimes what God is doing is bringing you to a hard place. 
And sometimes what God wants me to do is to help you walk with Him in the middle of your trials rather than to rescue you from your trials. You see, it's not God's purpose, and therefore it's not the job of the church to make your life smooth. It's not God's purpose, and therefore it's not the purpose of the church to make sure that you have everything temporal that you could ever want and need. This is not God's purpose, that the church would amass great financial means and be able to dole out money and resources for whatever it is that we're in need of. This fellow is talking about buying up TV stations and buying up radio stations and churches pooling together to purchase a large plantation where we can grow our own crops and make sure that there's always food to be distributed to the needy in our various churches and so on and so forth. Look, we just installed a deacon on that Sunday at made the point. God does care for our temporal needs. God cares for us body and soul. God has instituted the diaconate as a means of relieving our temporal needs. But what I'm saying to you is it's not God's ultimate concern that our lives are smooth. Yes, He wants us to show compassion one to another, and the compassion that we show one to another is an extension and a manifestation of His own compassion for us. He's put things in place to provide for us to take care of us and at least to some extent and in many cases to meet our temporal needs but sometimes God is going to let the well run dry sometimes God is going to let the cows get skinny just like he led them to Meribah where there was no water just like he led them between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea where they had no way out just like he led them to get hungry enough. He let them get hungry enough so that they cried out for manna. Sometimes the Lord is going to allow things to happen in your life, sometimes as part of his plan for you, in order that he might test you to know what is in your heart, whether you will keep his commandments or not. Now, what was in the heart of the Israelites, whether they would keep his commandments or not. Or not. Exactly. When the Lord brought the people to the edge of the Red Sea and pinned them there between Pharaoh's army and the water, he saw what was in their heart. And it wasn't, oh, we don't have to worry about this. The Lord, who has rained down these ten plagues on the Egyptians, surely his hand is not too short to save us. Oh, just wait. The Lord is going to manifest His mighty right arm. I don't know how He's going to do it, but He's going to see us through. It's not what happened at all. Oh, why did you bring us out here to kill us? And then they cross, and the water's bitter. And they, He sees what's in their heart. There they are complaining, grumbling. Again, Exodus 16. They get hungry. You brought us out here to die. Man, we remember when we used to sit by the meat pots in Egypt. Our lives were so much easier before Yahweh got involved and brought us up out of Egypt to kill us here in the wilderness with hunger. Massa and Meribah, we're going to die of thirst. Look, there's nothing here but this rock. 
we're going to die of thirst. And lo and behold, the Lord brings water out of the rock. But what we, what we see when God tested them to see what was in their heart, whether they would keep his commandments or not, was that it was the or not. They did not keep his commandments. I want you to consider your response to suffering, your response to difficulty. When will the deacon be here? I'm in great difficulty. Woe is me. I remember back before I joined this church, when I sat by the meat pots. But here I am, and the Lord and his people care nothing for me. And I'm going to be struck down and destroyed here in this situation. Grumbling, complaining, fretting, fearfulness, anxiety, blaming. What is your response to suffering? When things get tight, do you have a sense of entitlement or do you have a sense of gratitude and thankfulness for that which you do have? What is your response to suffering? Do you trust the Lord to provide what is needful for you? We saw last week that the manna was nothing to write home about. It was something that after a while they got kind of tired of. There's nothing but this manna to look at, remember? The rabble among them. The Lord doesn't promise that he's going to just meet all of your felt needs. He'll, he'll take care of you and provide what is needful for you. But what is needful for you in a particular season might be hunger or thirst or, or adversity like being stuck between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. The Lord does care about your temporal needs. He is involved in those things. And he has commissioned the diaconate of the church to care for the temporal needs of God's people as he's commissioned the pastors of the church to care for the spiritual needs of God's people. God does care about you, body and soul, but it's not his main thing to make you comfortable. And in fact, he will lead you to Maribel. What is the response of your heart when God leads you to Maribel? You need really only think probably of the last week, unless you're far more sanctified than I am, to find at least an instance of grumbling about something. Was there any point in this past week where you were grumbling, murmuring, as the Israelites did in Egypt about some circumstance or another of your life? Was there one instance this past week where you were fretful and anxious and fearful as the Israelites were when they were pinned between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea? Was there an instance when you were despairing? Woe is me, I'm going to die. Yes, the Lord has a right to do it, to strike me down. And strike me down, he will. I'm going to die for sure. Was there a time when you lost hope? What is the response of your heart to suffer? Even if you didn't suffer greatly in this past week, you probably had some minor adversities and discomforts. And if you're like me, you probably grumbled at least once. 
And if you grumble in these minor things, what happens when real tragedy strikes? What happens when you really are in a really tough bind? Maybe some of you were this past week. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know everybody's specific circumstance. Maybe you had an exceptionally hard week. But what I'm saying is, I'm arguing from the lesser to the greater. If you grumble even in these little things, you probably grumble also in these big things. If you despair in these little things or get fearful or fretful in these little things, you probably do the same in these big things. And so the reality is that when the Lord tests us to know what's in our hearts, whether we will keep His commandments or not, what's the answer? Or not. Very often it's or not. Isn't it? This is our present condition. We are sinners saved by grace, but we're still sinners. We are a new creation, yes, but there's remaining corruption. You need only to look at the imperfection of your physical body, the aches and pains you get, the uh, injuries you, you sustain. If you wear glasses, it's an evidence that you're not totally perfected in your body. There's still corruption at work in your physical self. And it's the same spiritually. You've been made new, that innermost principle has changed, that God has changed your heart, the core of your being, to give you an inclination towards Him. But as there's imperfection in your bodies, even if you're a relatively healthy person, there's imperfection in your soul, even if you're a relatively healthy Christian. The reality is that when God tests us to see what is in our heart, whether we will keep His commandments or not, too often the answer is, or not. What we see then, is that if we were to put together a CV, a spiritual CV applying for heavenly citizenship, this is who I am, Lord. These are all my accomplishments. This is all my experience. What would you find? You're underqualified. You don't get the job. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Uh, that's as it pertains to our justification, of course. It doesn't mean that in an instance we can't do something that's pleasing to God. We can as Christians, we don't have to sin. And in an instance, you might not sin. You might make a decision that, as Paul says, pleases the Lord. He says, we make it our aim to please Him. I hope you make it your aim to please Him. And sometimes you succeed in that. So not all of your righteousness is as filthy rags in that sense. Not everything you do is always repugnant to the Lord. But as pertains to justification, as it pertains to what we bring on our CV to the Lord to gain acceptance 
beforehand. As we hand in our exam paper for grading, as we go through his tests to see what's in our hearts, whether we keep his commands or not, what we find is that we get a failing grade. We're underqualified. We don't get the job. Christianity is not a bunch of people who have become good enough for God and are now accepted by God because they've become good enough for God. That's not what Christianity is. It's the same with the New Covenant people as it was with the Old Covenant people. When God brings us to Meribah and tests us to see what's in our hearts, whether we will keep His commandments or not, He finds in us, as He found in them, at least imperfection. Imperfection to varying degrees, but imperfection. He doesn't find what he ought to find there. If you're honest with your own heart, you will acknowledge that. Who can look God in the face, so to speak, and say, yes, Lord, every time you have brought me to Meribah, my ambition has been to please you, and I have succeeded. Every time you bring me to Meribah, nothing but faith, nothing but gratitude, Nothing but Christian joy, nothing but the fruit of the Spirit comes out when you bring me to Meribah. Who can say that? Therefore, when the Lord tests us as He tested them to know what was in our hearts, as He tested them to know what was in their hearts, whether we will keep His commandments or not, the answer is, or not. Now that obviously poses a problem to us. And the solution to this problem is real simple. Let's read on in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and look at verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We explored this statement, man does not live by bread alone, last week. They thought that the only way they could live is by bread. They thought they needed to find fields of wheat somewhere. Or they needed to find a herd of cattle somewhere. They were just thinking about natural cause and effect that the ordinary things that the Lord uses to sustain life, for which bread is summative, it's a stand-in for any kind of sustenance. They thought, by that alone can we live. That's our only hope. God wanted to teach them to factor Him in to their calculations. Man does not live by bread alone, but also, that's the sense of it, by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Yes, bread is our normal means, but if God doesn't give us bread, He can just give the word and we'll be sustained. If God just speaks the word, we'll have what we need. God can take care of us. This is what God wanted to teach the Israelites in the wilderness. This is what He wanted to see come from their hearts when He tested them to see what was in their heart. He wanted to see that response of faith. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word 
that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God, by his prophet many years later, speaking of the Exodus, says, out of Egypt I called my son. Here is God's son, Israel, in the wilderness, hungry, being tested, to see what was in his heart, whether he would keep God's commands or not, whether he would respond, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And here God's son, Israel, fails. We fail. What's the hope then? What's the solution to this? In Matthew's gospel, we read of the wise men coming to Jesus and then departing by another way in order to to Herod. You see the wise men departing from Jesus by another way in order not to return to Herod. Now when they had departed, this is Matthew 2.13, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So there is another Israel. There is a little child coming out of Egypt who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament type of God's Son. And this child comes out of Egypt. And where do we find him in chapter 4? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, where? Into the wilderness. Wait, wait, wait. Should we be leading God's people into the wilderness? Who led Jesus into the The Spirit. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. As God had led His Son, whom He called out of Egypt, into the wilderness. What's going to happen in the wilderness to God's Son? Well, let's see. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So there's going to be a test for God's Son, whom he called out of Egypt, in the wilderness. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Deuteronomy 8.3, and he humbled you and let you hunger. And the tempter came and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. 
you are hungry, you need bread. And how does Jesus respond? It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So we have somebody who has done over that test that Israel failed. We think very often about the true and better Adam. We just sang that. See the true and better Adam. Come behold the wondrous mystery. That one who did over that test that Adam failed and obeyed instead of disobeying on behalf of all those whom he came to represent. Now that's a common theme that we return to over and over again. It receives so much primacy in Scripture. The two more, most important people in the Bible is Jesus and Adam. Because if you understand that Adam was a representative of mankind who failed and plunged all of humanity into guilt and corruption. So by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And then you understand that Jesus obeyed on behalf of all those whom he represented. So that by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. You understand the basic storyline of the Bible. So that's a common theme for us. But what about Jesus, the true and better Israel? This is exactly what Matthew wants to get across to us. In Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, referring to the Israelites and the exodus out of Egypt, I called my son. But we read in Matthew chapter 2 that the scripture might be fulfilled. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. So just as Adam was a type of Christ, just as the lamb in the Old Testament was a type of Christ, just as the priest in the Old Testament was a type of Christ, just as the temple in the Old Testament was a type of Christ, so God's son who was called out of Egypt and led into the wilderness to be tested, Israel was a type of Christ. And Jesus comes and does over what the Israelites had to do in the wilderness. To be tested by God to see what was in their hearts, whether they would keep his commands or not. Jesus is led by the Spirit after being called out of Egypt. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness in order that the Lord might test him to see what was in his heart whether he would keep the Father's commands or not. And Jesus passes the test with flying colors. Unlike the Israelites at Meribah, unlike us at Meribah, Jesus at Meribah doesn't grumble. Unlike the Israelites at Meribah, where the water is bitter, unlike us at Meribah, where the water is bitter, Jesus doesn't grumble at Mary. 
And unlike the Israelites who got hungry and thought that man lives by bread alone, and unlike us who get hungry and often think that man lives by bread alone, Jesus got hungry but told the devil, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. Jesus succeeded where we failed. Jesus lived as a substitute for us. Jesus lived a righteous life as a substitute for our unrighteousness. In theological terms, this is called the active obedience of Christ. Very often we talk about being saved by the cross. And of course, we are, I'm not denying that. But do you ever stop to think that we're saved also by the life of Jesus? We're saved by his righteousness that he lived out over roughly 33 years here on this earth. We're saved by Jesus doing what Israel should have done but didn't. We're saved by Jesus doing what Adam should have done but didn't. We're saved by Jesus doing what you should have done and I should have done but didn't. You see, yes, we needed propitiation for our sins. We needed someone to bear the wrath of God in order that it might be turned away from us. And that is what Jesus did at the cross. That's called his passive obedience because it was something that happened to him. God's wrath was poured out upon him. In a sense, God was the actor, in a sense, and Jesus was, in a sense, passive in it. That it was something done to him. God's wrath was poured out upon him. That's why it's called his passive obedience. But Jesus actively obeyed every second of his life, the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart were acceptable in God's sight. And when he was called out of Egypt and led into the wilderness to be tested to see what was in his heart, whether he would keep God's commands or not, he did. And we need not only propitiation for our sins, all, all propitiation alone would do for us is get us back to zero. It's like if you had a negative balance in your bank account or a huge credit card debt and someone went and absorbed that cost themselves, all that would do is get you back to zero, but you still can't buy what you need. You still can't buy your groceries. You still can't whatever, whatever you need to do. There's no positive balance in it. And God requires not merely that we be void of sin, but that we also are righteous. And so we need not only to get rid of the guilt of our sin, but we also need righteousness. We need a wedding garment. You remember that parable that Jesus tells where the, the guy goes and the master of the feast goes and finds this guy and says, how, friend, how did you get in here with no wedding garment? We need to go to the feast, not, not only not clothed in dirty clothes, not only underdressed, ripped and tattered and smelly clothes that we didn't wash, but we also need to not go to the wedding banquet unclothed, undressed, 
We need appropriate garb, so to speak. And it's Jesus' active obedience that gives us this. Jesus is the true and better Israel who was called out of Egypt, who was led into the wilderness to be tempted, tested. And Jesus passes with flying colors. Jesus demonstrates righteousness, holiness, trust in the Father in the midst of his test, in the midst of his temptation. And so what is it then that our confidence ought to be in? What is it then that our confidence ought to be in when it comes to justifying righteousness? Our righteousness? No. As pertains to justification, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. What is it then that we need to be trusting in? The righteousness of Christ. Jesus' active obedience. Jesus' sinless life. 